0: Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 125 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 20th of July 2014, entitled The Genesis Account, Part 2. And the Bible reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. First of all, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, the last two verses invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Holy Word. You don't need to turn there, but just before we read that verse, I'd like to read one verse, the first verse in your Bible, which simply says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, The Apostle Paul, under inspiration, closes out his letter to Timothy saying, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some, professing, have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Father, as we look into your word once again this morning, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that we can have this time together. We thank you, Lord, that we have your word before us that has been preserved for us. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us. And Father, as we come to this time now to look into your word, we realize so full well that, Lord, all is totally and completely dependent upon you. Yes, you know the hearts of each individual today. You know the needs. You know those that are lost that need to be saved, those that are backslidden that need to be restored, your children that need to be built up, encouraged, lifted up in the faith, to be stronger, that we could be greater witnesses for you on this earth. So, Father, we pray that you would take this time that we have in your word this morning, that you would use it, Lord, to bring forth the words under the power of your spirit, Lord, that our hearts would be open and receptive to that which you have for us, that you will do that work, that only you can. And we'll give you the thanks, the praise, the glory, the honor for it. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, for quite some time, of course, we have been dealing for the most part, been away for a while. Upon the real thought of contending for the faith. And of course, we move from that essential necessity of being willing to contend for that faith that was once for all delivered to us to speaking about many of the fundamentals of that faith, the foundation of that faith for which we are to contend. Too many people fight over too many things that are not essential, that are not fundamental, that are not foundational. We can disagree, but there are things that are foundational to our faith that are fundamental because they are so clearly set out for us in God's Word. We came back to one of those fundamentals this past Sunday, and we began with saying that over these next weeks, that we're really going to be trying to answer two of the most important questions that probably enter most people's mind. The first one, where did we come from? How did all of this begin? And secondly, where are we going? How is it going to finish? So we began, first of all, with that first question of, where we come from, how that is everything that we know had its beginning. So we turn to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. We talked about many things, and if you weren't here, you can go back, but we realized that, I said in fact, though many people would shy away from thinking that they believe in creation, and yet everybody believes in creation of some kind. We talked about the theory of evolution and and, and Darwin and many of those things it brought into existence and and some of those theories that man has that I genuinely believe is precisely what we're being warned about here in Scripture, those vain babblings, oppositions of science, falsely so-called. They call them science, knowledge. But of course... Even the theory of evolution does not answer the question of where we came from, of how it began. It picks up with something that was and what it evolves into, what we currently are. The truth is, is that even there, they don't answer the question of where that life came from. And we looked at all the the Big Bang and the Cosmic Soup and some of those things last week. But in actual fact, there's only two ways that life came into existence. Last week, we looked at that spontaneous creation. In other words, they believe that life was created some way. They just believe that it, poof, spontaneously happened all by itself. It still had to be created. It still had to come from somewhere. It just did not have an outside creator. It's not creation that's the question Everybody accepts creation of some kind. It's the creator is where the real question comes in. So we find that we looked at some of those things concerning spontaneous creation, how that life sprang into being all of its own accord with no outside help. But then the second is that if you do not believe in spontaneous creation, the other alternative is supernatural creation. We read from Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 how that God created everything. We finished off last week with that illustration that I left you with. Sir Isaac Newton, when he built this model or had this model built, and his friend that absolutely was beside himself in the fact that there's no way that that thing just appeared by itself. And yet Newton, when he spoke back, I quote his words again, this thing is but a puny imitation of a much grander system whose laws you know and I'm not able to convince you that this mere toy is without a designer and maker, yet you profess to believe that the great original from which the design is taken has come into being without either designer or maker. Now tell me, by what sort of reasoning do you reach such an incongruous conclusion? Many people that maybe don't accept spontaneous creation. Many people that believe in some kind of a supernatural creation do not believe in the same kind of literal six-day creation that the Bible describes. So often those things that we looked at last week, they try to somehow take because that's what the world says is science. That's what they say is knowledge. That's what they say is fact, though it's still a theory. They try to mix that some way with the God of the Bible. They come up with all kinds of compromises. Now the question is sometimes asked very genuinely and very sincerely. Does it really matter? Why does it matter whether or not you believe in a literal six days of creation? What's the big deal? As long as you believe that God created it, does the timescale and how that it happened, does that really matter? I think it matters very much. When Darwin's theory first came out, it faced fierce opposition by most anybody that had any kind of religious views whatsoever with the passing of time, his theories becoming more and more popular, many of those in that religious community began to look for options. Something that wasn't so at odds with mainstream society and what they said was. I want to read you something from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, that's one of the most spiritual books you've ever delved into, I'm sure, isn't it? (laughs) Written with all kinds of spiritual biases. (laughs) We know that it's supposedly a book of facts. We read a couple of quotes from it last week. One thing for certain is you can't accuse it of coming from a spiritual bias. This is what it says. Gradually. Gradually. Well into the 20th century, evolution by natural selection came to be accepted by the majority of Christian writers. Now, the majority, when this theory first came out, were in fierce opposition. But now the world itself recognizes and said that into the 20th century, it had, come to be accepted by the majority of Christian workers, Pope Pius XII, in his encyclical Homini Generis in 1950, entitled Of the Human Race, acknowledged that biological evolution was compatible with the Christian faith, although he argued that God's intervention was necessary for the creation of the human soul. So he's trying to compromise, say, okay, you know, maybe all this happened. That's very compatible that evolution did this, but God still had to create the human soul. Pope John the Paul II, in an address to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences on October the 22nd, 1996, I dare say that all except one or two here this morning were alive at that time. Deplored interpreting the Bible's text as scientific statements rather than religious, religious teachings, adding this, new scientific knowledge has led us to realize that the theory of evolution is no longer a mere hypothesis. It is indeed remarkable that this theory has been progressively accepted by researchers following a series of discoveries in various fields of knowledge. The convergence, neither sought nor fabricated, of the results of work that is conducted independently is in itself a significant argument in favor of this theory. You say, well, okay, that was the Catholic Church. We, we know that we got some differences with what they believe anyway. But it goes on to say, similar views were expressed by other mainstream Christian denominations. The General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church, supposed to be a good, Sound, Bible believing denomination, in 1982 adopted a resolution stating that biblical scholars and theological schools find that the scientific theory of evolution does not conflict with their interpretation of the origins of life found in biblical literature. Nothing conflicting between the views of evolution and what the Bible teaches. The Lutheran World Federation in 1965 affirmed that evolution's assumptions are as much around us as the air we breathe and no more escapable. At the same time, theology's affirmations are being made as responsibly as ever. In this sense, both science and religion are here to stay and need to remain in a healthful tension of respect toward one another similar statements have been advanced by Jewish authorities and those of other major religions In 1984, the 95th Annual Convention of the Central Conference of American Rabbis adopted a resolution saying, whereas the principles and concepts of biological evolution are basic to understanding science, we call upon science teachers and local school authorities in all states to demand quality textbooks that are based on modern scientific knowledge and that exclude scientific creationism. This is what... The Jewish people were calling for that creation teaching has no place in the schools. Folks, that's just a tip of the iceberg. That's the slippery slope that Christianity as a whole began to go down when they began to accept these theories of evolution, these false sciences of the world and tried to make them compatible somehow to their theology. To start with most of the Christian community with all their differences and everything else, together they fiercely opposed Darwin's theories. As time went on, more and more tried to find ways to have it both ways. They did not want to stand against science. I say science falsely so-called. They should have heeded these words to Timothy. Keep that which is committed to thy trust avoiding profane and vague babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Today, as we come together here on this glorious Sunday in 2014, even many, in what we would call evangelical, more conservative circles, have moved from a literal interpretation to all kinds of compromised positions. I have personally had conversations with men, with preachers, that would consider themselves unashamedly evangelical, would consider themselves to hold to a strong biblical stance, and yet they do not hold to a young earth, literal six-day creation. To say that you believe in creation can unfortunately now have all kinds of different meanings besides the literal interpretation of what the Bible says, which is a young earth, six literal days of creation, there are those that try to come up with old earth creationism, you know, began with things like gap creationism. And of course, the gap theory was trying to hang on to the fact that yes, God did created all in six literal days, but there was a big gap between when God first created it in Genesis chapter 1 and then what happened later in verse 2. To try to say that, well, yeah, what science sees in all these millions of years, we talked about last week, that that's true, but yet after that, God recreated in, in six days after that was all messed up. There are those also in that group that try to hold to some day-age creationism. Now, there's all kind of variations here, but bottom line, what they're saying is that those days in in, in creation, and we'll look more at that later in one of the other topics, but but that word yom there in the Hebrew, that it doesn't mean a literal 24-hour day, that it can literally be translated as an age. And so therefore, what they're saying is that one day, in Genesis chapter 1, it's not one 24-hour day because that's not what you means, but that it could be literally thousands, millions, billions, whatever that it needs to be to fit into their calculations of what science sees today. Now, we'll look at some of that later, but that was some strange million-year days in the morning and the evening were the first day, and the morning and the evening were the second day, and those were some long days, that's for sure. There are those that hold to progressive creationism, neo-creationism. There's a whole idea of intelligent design, and I can give you all kind of material on that. You can Google it. You can go and you can study it. The truth is there's all kinds of different ideas that have come in that try to hold on to some kind of a supernatural, intelligent being having a hand in it, and yet... It fit in to what science says is necessary for us to have life as we have it. We'll talk about some of that later. For many of us, to not accept the Bible for what it says, on the matter of creation or anything else, is, I believe, a sad situation for the church to be in. I repeat, it is important. I'm not just trying to find something to argue about because I've got nothing better to do. I can tell you from the depths of my heart, I have absolutely no need, no desire to stand upon some truth that'll put other people in opposition just for the sake of being there. Why? What logical reason would there be for it even? I repeat, That to move from any position other than a literal Genesis account of creation is far, far more serious and much farther reaching in its destructiveness than just the creation act itself. But that's where it begins. You see, Genesis is the book of beginnings. Beginnings in regard to life, everything that we see around us, but the book of beginnings for many other things as well, pertaining to both physical and the spiritual world. The Genesis account. Genesis itself means beginnings, origins. It is the book of beginnings, the book of origins. If it's the book of beginnings... God has given us, then of necessity, it is foundational to Scripture and much that we hold dear. Psalm 11, verse 3, I read this verse last week, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can be done? Matthew chapter seven, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The world's tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It opened on January 4th, 2010 at 2,717 feet tall. I think it was 2,716.5 or something like that. That's to kind of get it in your head. That's more than half a mile straight up. We find that there's all kinds of things that it holds the records for tallest man-made structure, building with the most floors, highest elevator, world's fastest elevators, 40 miles per hour, first world's tallest structure to include residential space, the highest outdoor observations, the, the world's highest mosque is located there, the world's highest swimming pool. Most attention focuses upon its height, but what you never see is what lies beneath it to hold that building in place. Without a solid foundation, the world's tallest building would become the world's longest pile of rubble, probably. (laughs) You see, extending 164 feet deep, 58,900 cubic yards of concrete, itself weighing over 120,000 tons. It took a year just to build the foundation before anything could be built upon it that you can visually see. Folks, nothing will stand without a solid foundation. What Jesus is saying to us here in Matthew chapter 7 whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, if we listen to what he says, then he says, we're like a wise person that built his house upon a rock and when the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and everything came upon it, it didn't fall because it was on a solid foundation. But those that do not hear what he says. It's like building that structure on the sand. And when the storm comes, guess what? It all comes tumbling down. I'm saying we need to grasp. People try to say, oh, you're just being picky that, you know, to believe that it had to happen in six literal 24-hour days as we know them. That's not important. As long as you know that God did it. I say that Genesis... What God gave us is the book of beginnings. And it's the beginning. It is a foundation for much that follows after it. Many of the great doctrines of Scripture have their beginning, their foundation in the book of beginnings. The Genesis account is vital to a correct understanding of where it all begins. That certainly includes our beginning as human beings, but it also is the beginning and foundation of much more. From Answers in Genesis, I quote, suppose that we're being questioned concerning the doctrines that Christians believe. Think carefully how you would answer in detail. Why do we believe in marriage? Why do we promote the wearing of clothes? Why are the rules things that are right, things that are wrong? Why are we sinners? What does that mean? Why is there death, and suffering in this world? Why is there one day need to be a new heaven and a new earth? Those are just some examples of questions that you take away the book of beginnings. How are you going to have an answer for them? In our focus on contending for the faith, on the fundamental foundational things of that faith that we are to contend for. As we focus on some of the beginnings, the foundations that we find in Genesis, this can by no means be exhaustive. We could spend a long time going through the book of Genesis. And many of those vital doctrines and teachings that we hold dear, they have their foundations there in They do deserve a lot of study. But what I want us to see here is why simply the Genesis account is so important to our Christian faith, why it's so important for us to contend for it with all of our heart regardless of not only what society is saying and society is doing, but regardless of where the religious community has moved to and what they're saying. We're not in a popularity contest. We want to be those that listen to what our Lord teaches us, what he tells us, and stand firm upon that solid rock. Now I said to you last week, just briefly, and I mean, I'm serious, folks, the list could go on. I've just made a list of 12 things that I believe are vitally important that we can take out of the book of beginnings just to give us an example I want to give you one this morning that I believe that if we take this away, the whole foundation of our Christian faith stands to crumble. People can still claim to be Christians, people can still be religious. But I'm saying it stands to crumble. And what is that, preacher? The authority of God's Word, the authority of God's Word. If we take away the Genesis account in any way, then we're taking away the authority of God's Word. Now, there are some, especially even in evangelical circles of Christianity, who would say that they believe in the authority of God's Word. And I know that some of those people would accuse me of going too far on this subject and others. Of making strong statements and divisive statements that cannot be substantiated by scripture. Well, I'm saying to you that it is precisely upon the authority of God's word that I make those claims and precisely where the evidence lies. Science, as they call it, they have no evidence. The evidence that I have is that I have God's Word. Now, if a person doesn't take that, you see, you can't have it both ways. You can't have God's Word and not take what God said. God's Word is either authoritative or it is not. One or the other. There is nowhere in between those two statements, it's authoritative. Or it's not. If we're going to believe in the authority of God's Word, then may I say it stands to reason that we must accept the Genesis account as literal truth as it is written, as God has given it to us, not as man wants it to read not as man supposes that it should be, as it is. We find that our study on the fundamentals of faith began. The very first sermon in that was entitled, The Basis of Our Faith, the Inspired Word of God. I've never made any apologies that the fundamentals, the foundations of all that we're talking about are based upon God's word. If you take God's word away, everything else disappears. 1 Thessalonians two thirteen. For this calls also, thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not, as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. We talked about that word effectually just a few uh, weeks ago when we talked about the effectual door that was opened before us. An effective door will effectively work in you that believe it. You see, Paul, in writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we have that very familiar passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou... In the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Have we got it from God or have we not? And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Is it inspired or is it not? If you were not here, when we did those sermons, and it's been probably, I don't know, three years ago. They are on audio on the website, or I have printed copies that you are willing. I think it was in about three sermons that I'll gladly pass on to you, because we're not gonna go back and go through all of that again. But in short, what we said during those sermons was that we stand upon the fact that God's word, first of all, is inspired. It was breathed by God himself through those servants that penned it down. The scripture we just read. We said that God's word was inerrant. We looked at a number of passages, but simply that if it's God's word, and if God said it, there can be No error. We said that it was infallible. In other words, when God says it, that's it. It works. It can't fail. It can't be wrong. It's not only without error, it's impossible for it not to do what it sent forth to do. We said that it was indestructible. What do we mean? I mean that God's word is preserved no matter what. Men have tried to destroy it. Men continue to try to destroy it. But God's word is indestructible. We said pertaining precisely to what we're looking at here that it is indisputable. In other words, it's authoritative in every word. You can't argue with it. You can't dispute with it. God's the one that wrote it, God gave it to us, God sent it to us, and finally that it was inclusive, that it's complete, that it's final in what it says. It doesn't need to be changed. It doesn't need to be corrected as man continually has to go along correcting his ideas and thoughts. If we truly believe in the authority of God's Word, we must accept the Genesis account as a revelation given directly from God, giving us an accurate and reliable count of the beginnings of man and the universe and everything that follows. That He gave it through His servant Moses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that He has preserved it to this day with complete accuracy. It is authoritative in what it says, and it is complete and final in its truth. And we're going to be looking specifically at what it says concerning a number of things, including creation in six days. But we've got to understand in the first instance that if we do not take what Genesis says, as it says it, authoritatively, then we cannot, on the other hand, claim to believe in the authority of God's Word. This simple thought that I wrote down that came as I was studying these things, if it is authoritative at all, it is authoritative in all. If it's authoritative at all, then it's authoritative in everything that it says. Our time is about gone. I'd like to read you the first two paragraphs of another sermon. A sermon that was written in 1909, a little over 100 years ago. It was written by a man by the name of Reverend Dyson Haig. And it was written for a publication that was first published in 1909, entitled The Fundamentals. It was later, about 1958, compiled into one big volume. It was about 12 volumes to start with, edited by R.A. Torrey and some others. But this particular sermon was entitled The Doctrinal Value of the First Chapters of Genesis. Now, this is what men were seeing over 100 years ago. Notice this statement. It says, the book of Genesis is in many respects the most important book in the Bible. It is of the first importance because it answers not exhaustively but sufficiently the fundamental questions of the human mind. Notice his next statement. It contains the first authoritative information given to the race concerning these questions of everlasting interest, the being of God, the origin of the universe, the creation of man, the origin of the soul, the fact of revelation, the introduction of sin, the promise of salvation, the primitive division of the human race, the purpose of the elected people, the preliminary part in the program of Christianity in one word. In this inspired volume of beginnings, we have the satisfactory explanation of all the sin and misery and contradiction now in this world and the reason of the scheme of redemption, or to put it another way, the book of Genesis is the seed in which the plant of God's Word is enfolded. It is the starting point of God's gradually unfolded plan of the ages. Genesis is the plinth of the pillar of the divine revelation. It is the root of the tree of the inspired scriptures. It is the source of the stream of the holy writings of the Bible. It is the base of the pillar, or if the base of the pillar is removed, the pillar falls. If the root of the tree is cut out, the tree will wither and die. If the fountain head of the stream is cut off, the stream will dry up. The Bible as a whole is like a chain hanging upon two staples. The book of Genesis is the one staple and the book of Revelation is the other. Take away either staple, the chain falls in confusion. If the first chapters of Genesis are unreliable, the revelation of the beginning of the universe, the origin of the race, and the reason for its redemption are gone. If the last chapters of Revelation are displaced, the consummation of all things is unknown. If you take away Genesis, you have lost the explanation of the first heaven, the first earth, the first Adam in the fall. If you take away Revelation, you have lost the completed truth of the new heaven, the new earth, man redeemed, and the second Adam in paradise regained. If Genesis is God's word on the matter to believe, otherwise is to undermine the very authority of all of God's Word. God's Word itself claims that authority, as we read earlier. It is vital to our faith as a whole that the authority of our faith is found in God's Word, in God's knowledge, and not man that we trust and accept the knowledge he gives us versus the knowledge man gives us. If we dismiss any part of the Genesis account as myth or deem it inaccurate in some way, then I say we begin to undermine the very foundation of all that we believe because we diminish the authority of God's Word. The Genesis account is where that authority begins, and it follows through to the very last. Amen. i say again, if it is authoritative at all, it is authoritative in all. What about all those Christians that don't accept the Genesis account, that don't take it as factual, that don't believe it's reliable. Well, may I say, first of all, I'm glad that that's between them and God, not between me and them, not between me and God. But I know for a fact that I sure don't want to go there with my faith. It's not a place I want to be. And Paul dealt with it. I give you this passage in closing this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Notice what he says beginning in verse 13. He said, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Verse 15 says, Study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more. Ungodliness and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lust. But follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strives. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. The Bible is saying to us clearly, you know, it's not our place to go out there and to show how wonderfully wise we are and how stupid they are. We know the truth. We count it only because of God that has given us that knowledge. And we need to stand firm on that truth, but we need to be patient to those that don't. Their only hope is that they could come to know and understand this truth. Peradventure, he says, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive at his, his will. There's nobody underwriting evolution and all of Darwin's theory and everything that goes along with it except Satan. You can count on that. And many have been led astray. But there's none of us that haven't been misguided in some area. The thing is, we need to stand on the truth regardless. And we need to be apt. We need to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If anything is ever going to change any of those minds that have been led astray, though Many of them can genuinely be born-again believers. The truth is, it's the Word of God that will have to do it. Let us not begin to undermine the authority of God's Word. I'm saying that you cannot. It is a total impossibility no matter how much you say it. You can't take God's Word, change it to suit you, and still claim the authority of God's Word. If it's authoritative at all, it's authoritative in all. Father, I thank you today, Lord, that the Genesis account is vital to us. It's important for many reasons. But Lord, as we've seen here this morning, that Lord, all of these false sciences around us are like a cancer that over the years, they've just moved more and more and more and more through Christian realm. Today, as we stand here, there are many out there Lord, that do not understand and recognize the importance of taking the Genesis account for what it says. So I pray that you'll bless us over this next sermon or two as we just underline some of the things that has its beginnings, its foundation in the book of beginnings, in the book of origins. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, not to lord it over anyone, but simply to take you at your word, to accept it and understand it and know that if you said it, that's it, we can count on it. For in Christ's name we pray, amen.